decisions. Decisions are the pivot point of life. You make so many decisions every day, you're not even conscious of some of those decisions. Some of the decisions you make, your mind is not engaged. You simply decide. G.K. Chesterton said, There is a road from the eye to the heart that does not go through the intellect. Right lane or left lane? Wheaties or Cheerios? Sofa or recliner? Lunch at 12.30 or 1 o'clock? Should I send that email now or should I wait until tomorrow? Blue shirt or red shirt? Should I sign the contract or should I continue to negotiate? Should I buy 100 shares or 200 shares? How is it that you make decisions? Sometimes our mind is actively involved and we analyze, we scrutinize, we prioritize, we, we look at all of the p- potential options and it's as a result of a great mental exercise that we make a choice. But Chesterton's right. Sometimes we simply make a decision and our intellect has been bypassed. I find the observation by the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards regarding how we make decisions not only helpful, but biblical. He said this, We always and only choose We always and only choose according to the strongest inclination in our heart at the moment. You're driving on the freeway in the right lane. You see a car ahead of you, some ways away, that's going much slower than you. Do you have the freedom to choose the right lane or the left lane? That's not how you make a decision. Your choice is based on the strongest inclination of your heart at the moment. Well, let's say for a moment that that you're expecting to exit the freeway in just one more exit. So the strongest inclination of your heart at that moment is to slow down and wait for your exit to come. You're going to stay in the right lane. Well, let's say that you are on your way to an appointment across town. You're running a little late. And the strongest inclination of your heart at that moment is to get in the left lane so that you're not slowed down by the slower vehicle in front of you. Oh, but wait, as soon as you glance over your shoulder to make sure that it's clear, you find that there's a small car in your blind spot. So the smallest, the strongest inclination of your heart at that moment is to wait 
until that car passes, and then you get into the left lane. You make choices, always, only, according to the strongest inclination of your heart at the moment. This morning we're in a passage of Scripture, John chapter 6. We're, we're finishing that chapter this morning. Uh, we've been here for a number of weeks. It is a rich, deep passage. It, 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 it started um, with, with, with Jesus feeding a, a mass of people, thousands of people, with, with five small dinner rolls and two pickled fish. How in the world did he do that? It is, as the scriptures uh, identify, a miraculous sign. And a sign signifies, signifies, points to something. And that something is that Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is none other than God Almighty in the flesh. That led to a lengthy discussion with the Jews, those who were present, about Jesus being the bread of life. It was a, a metaphor, a figure of speech that Jesus used uh, to, to, to point to the fact, to the reality that, that he is the one who is the source of life and the sustainer of life. There is no other one. He is the only one by which or by whom we have life. We conclude chapter 6 this morning. I invite you to turn there with me and read as I finish the chapter beginning at verse 59. John chapter 6. Verse 59, these things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who, who, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled about this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have wor the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of, of, of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What we find in our text this morning are, are two responses to Jesus. People made two decisions. They, they were forced to make a decision. What, what are you going to do with Jesus? How are you going to look at him? How are you going to respond to him? There were those who rejected him, walked away. And those who confessed him to be none other than the bread of life, the source of life. Verse 59 opens, uh, in, informing us that Jesus was speaking these words in the synagogue. Now, you might conclude, therefore, that, that Jesus spoke um, on, a, on a Sabbath day, that he was the guest preacher, maybe. And that's possible, um, but that's not, that's not important. Um, what is important is that there is a solemnity that is brought to the text as Jesus speaks these words. Probably verses 26 through 58 is what's uh, mentioned, there, uh, referred to. He spoke these words about who he was and about his work in the synagogue. There was a solemn place where solemn words were given. And men and women who hear must respond. What are you going to do with Jesus? Verse 16 opens with this phrase, uh, many of his disciples, and that requires a bit of explanation you might not think so. Uh, that's pretty point and cut and dry, isn't it? Well, the, the word disciple simply means follower. And verse 60 describes followers that were following Jesus in a physical sense. They went with him from place to place. What happened earlier in this chapter? They saw Jesus feeding thousands of people in a miraculous way earlier that same day he was healing all that were sick that had been brought to him so here you have free food free health care i don't know free college education they were looking for all the good, free stuff they could get out of Jesus. So they were following him physically from place to place. Now, metaphorically, to follow Jesus in, uh, it, with regard to salvation means that I submit to him as the authoritative teacher. That's a different kind of disciple. 
So we're talking here about the first kind of disciple I just mentioned. Those were, that were simply looking to get what they could out of Jesus rather than looking to follow him because of who he was. Many of the disciples, when they heard this, what's the this? What had they just heard? Well, let me, by way of review, say they, they heard three things from Jesus. If, we could, if I could summarize all of uh, the verses prior to this here in chapter 6. They heard that Jesus came down out of heaven. That caused a great deal of pause in their thinking. Why? Because all of their religious heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they were all mere men. And by Jesus saying, I have come down out of heaven, he was saying, I'm not just a mere man. I am greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. That caught them a little off guard. Secondly, Jesus asserted as the bread of life that he alone brings spiritual life. He is the only one, the sole bringer of life. That caused them to rethink all of their religious priorities and religious practices. What? Everything is not centered around Moses, Torah, the synagogue, the Sabbath. It's all centered around Jesus. And then Jesus said, if you would have life, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now think about these disciples who were followers of Jesus going from place to place. They were looking for Jesus to provide them with the physical stuff of life. They were looking at life from a materialistic vantage point. And here Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Are you kidding me? This is nothing short of cannibalism. Of course, Jesus was not referring to a literal gnawing on his forearm. He was talking about ingesting who he was, digesting what he said, and responding in faith. Responding in belief, responding in repentance, putting aside anything else that would detract from a soul focus on Jesus. That's what the this refers to in verse 60. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Meaning, this is a hard saying. Not that it's difficult to comprehend, 
but it's difficult to believe. And for many in the crowd, many of these Jews, what Jesus said was offensive. So Jesus, verse 61, conscious that his disciples grumbled at what he said, he said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Of course it it did, and Jesus knew that. He, He uttered the sentence, uttered the question in order to put in their mind, yes, this is a stumbling block. This is offensive. Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I think that phrase, ascending to where he was before, refers to the package of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in essence, I think what Jesus is saying is this, You are offended by me telling you that I came down from heaven. You're offended by me telling you that I am the bread of life. I am the sole source of life. You're offended because I tell you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Listen, you think that's offensive. Wait until you hear and then you see that Messiah, the anointed of God, is tortured and executed in Jerusalem and then returns to where he was alive to be at the right hand of the Father. That's going to blow all of your categories. Jesus affirms, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The the flesh profits nothing. Let me pause there. Back in John chapter 1, John said in in verse, uh, verse 12, as many as received him, to them, that is, who believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. He's speaking of, um, in in a summary statement as he begins his book, uh, to say um, new life in Christ, being born again, being born from above, is is not something that, that happens because of physical descent. You are not born from above because you are born of of uh, blood, of 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 the, the normal human activity. Because you're a descendant of Abraham, physically doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom. The flesh profits you nothing. It doesn't benefit you spiritually. Jesus affirms, it is the Holy Spirit that brings life. Amplifying that, he says at the end of verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh isn't going to give you what you want and what you need. 
You, you, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's certainly not, not a result of, of, of normal conception and, and physical birth. What, what you need comes only by the Holy Spirit. And, and what I have been giving you, Jesus says, are words of spirit and life. What I have told you is the path to spiritual life. You can't get it anywhere else. Verse 63 begins, but. That's a very big but. As a matter of fact, that's the strongest adversative in the Greek language. But! There are some of you who do not believe. Why did Jesus say that? Well, well, because he, he, has, he has just revealed the path to life. And he affirms that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings that life. The response in order to embrace that life is one of belief, one of repentance, one of faith, one of trust. And Jesus says, um, you're not all here. You're not all responding in this way. By that statement in verse 63, Jesus is saying, in part, he's revealing in part, what is expected? This is the desired result. This is what he wants to see happen. Indeed, this is what is required in order to have spiritual life. Now, all of us in this room this morning we are physically alive. Most of you are. Um, but, but, but there is coming a time when the physical life that we enjoy or don't enjoy is going to come to an end. It is appointed unto man once to die and then comes the resurrection and the judgment that follows. My escape from God's coming wrath is only by belief. Uh, verse 64 um, continues. J Jesus knew who from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. What? That's odd. Why, 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 would he, why would he throw that into the mix here? Why, why, would, why would John affirm uh, Jesus' omniscience, that he, he knows all who are going to put their faith in Christ, and there's also this detail about one who betrays him. I think John was affirming the fact that uh, Jesus does have all knowledge. He is the sovereign one. There is, there is nothing that happens outside of his authoritative control. Nothing. Including this one who would betray him, which we're going to find out a little bit more information a little bit later. Jesus affirmed, verse 65, 
For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me, that is, no one has the ability, unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, in verse 37 and verse 44 in this particular chapter, Jesus has um, revealed to us the truth that fallen mankind do not possess the ability to affect their own spiritual destiny. Let's go back to the decision-making grid that we use. You have before you, uh, let's make it generic. A person has before them this choice. Believe in Jesus or reject him. They're going to make that decision, always and only, based on the strongest inclination in their heart at that moment. Well, Jesus knows the hearts of man, and until the Holy Spirit changes our heart, Prophet Ezekiel says that when the, when the Holy Spirit does this particular work, he, he takes out our, our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh, meaning that this heart of stone that is unable to respond to the things of God is going to be removed. And the Holy Spirit is going to replace that with a heart of flesh, a heart that actually can beat, pump blood, respond to the things of God. The Holy Spirit will change our hearts. And in so doing, we are now able to make a choice. And those who have been touched by the Holy Spirit in this way, drawn by the Father, if you will, these are the ones who, for the first time, see the option of choosing Jesus and are so inclined because of the sweetness of the Savior, they are so inclined they will, with certainty, choose him. Now what, we've, what, what I've just, in a summary form, tried to, to explain is, 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 a, is, a, is a difficult doctrine, the doctrine of predestination. Here's just one. The pages are replete with God's sovereign control over all things, even the destinies of men and women. Listen, just we've, we've looked at this passage in the past talking about these other verses in chapter 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul begins his letter to Ephesians. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been 
predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Does predestination mean that I don't have a choice? When we, when we start talking about this subject, there are many who will, will uh, uh, get on a soapbox and, and, and talk about the free will of men. That's a, a, an incorrect approach to dealing with this whole topic. The correct approach is, does God ever coerce a man to do something against the strongest inclination of his will at any given moment? Short answer is, absolutely not. So let me ask you this question as we close point number one. These disciples that walked away from Jesus... Verse 66 tells us that there were, there were these, these many disciples that withdrew and did not walk with him anymore. Did, did these disciples not have a choice? Were they coerced by God to not walk with Jesus? Second page of your notes. I'll answer the question in just a few minutes. So Jesus turns to the 12. He, many, many of these disciples that were following him because of what they could get out of Jesus, many of these who followed withdrew, walked away, rejected Jesus. And, and so he turns to his disciples and he asks them, you do not want to go away also, do you? Peter, speaking for the twelve, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where, where else are we going to find life? You have the words of life. Where else are we going to turn? Who can give us what only you can give us? Verse 69, Peter says, again, speaking for the twelve, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That phrase, the Holy One of God, simply means, it, it denotes one who has been set aside by the Father. To, to, be, to be holy is to, is to set something apart as sanctified, different, unique. It, ha it has a particular purpose. In Scripture, when uh, believers are called the holy ones of God, doesn't mean that we are morally perfect. Um, ho hopefully, we're moving that direction, but we ain't there yet. When, when, when the Scriptures call us the holy ones of God, it, it simply is an affirmation that we have been set apart, sanctified, made different, distinct by the Father for a particular purpose in this world. Well, when Jesus is given that title, uh, the Holy One of God, 
Peter is affirming that Jesus, Jesus alone, has been called of God to be the anointed. Called of God to fulfill his responsibility to redeem mankind. (coughs) So in being called the Holy One of God, Peter is affirming that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's Redeemer, and whatever process he has to go through, Peter doesn't even know what that means yet, he affirms, yes, Jesus must fulfill the Father's will. We have believed, have come to know, you are the Holy One of God. What does Jesus say? Well done. Way to go. You nailed it. I love you, bud. Give me five. He didn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. Did, did, he, did, he, did he forget to say that? This is what he said. Did I myself not choose you? The twelve. And yet one of you is a devil. Now that's interesting. You remember um, uh, the, the, the process of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was, it was on the night of, of um, the Passover that Jesus, after the meal, went into the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed, And it was there that Judas Iscariot came and kissed Jesus. It was the kiss of death. It was the the um, uh, it was the signal to the temple police to come and arrest that man because it was dark in the garden. Couldn't see. They had torches, but being able to positively identify somebody in the dark was difficult. So Jesus betrays or Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus is subsequently arrested, tried, executed, etc., etc. It was um, it was after Judas left that night to make arrangements for the betrayal that Jesus said to his eleven, "I have chosen you." John chapter fifteen, verse seventeen. And that choosing has to do with salvation. Here, when we read in verse 70, Jesus says, did I myself not choose you? He's referring to his choosing of these 12 to be his ambassadors, his apostles, if you will. And he made that choice knowingly purposefully, intentionally, with Judas present, knowing that he would be the betrayer, he would be the traitor, he would be the turncoat, he would be the tool of Satan himself. An explanatory note at verse 71. Uh, now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We would think um, on the basis of verse 71 that Iscariot 
is Judas's last name. Especially after his father, Simon Iscariot, has the second name, similar, Iscariot. Well, truth, truth be told, Iscariot is not Judas's last name. According to Hebrew culture, Judas's last name was Bar-Simon. He was Judas, son of Simon. So where does his dad, Simon, get this same designation, Iscariot? Well, the, the word Iscariot was, was uh, attached to Judas um, because Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples knew exactly who he was talking about. Because there were two Judases among the apostles. There was Judas, the son of James, a.k.a. Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot. In the, in the Greek, it's, it's um, um, ish, uh, in the Hebrew rather, it's ish kirioth, meaning the man from Kirioth, a, 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 a town in Judah. So Jesus is pointedly and specifically identifying Judas. N- not that Judas, this Judas. We're talking about the 12 here. Well, I'm talking about this Judas. Judas, the one from Kirioth. Evidently, his father was from Kirioth also. Judas, of Kir- the man from Kirioth. This is the one who is going to betray me, says Jesus. Okay, if, 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 if Jesus is sovereign, if he has authority over all things, including the destinies of men, then Judas is predestined to betray Jesus. Wait, you mean he he didn't have a choice in the matter? Wrong question. The right question is, was Judas ever coerced by God to do that which was wrong? Was he ever coerced to betray Jesus? No. No. You see, Christianity is not fatalistic, especially when we talk about election and choosing and predestination. If you want a fatalistic uh, religion, turn to Islam. There, There is admittedly a tension in Christianity between God being sovereign over all things, all things, all things, and yet man having a responsibility. These disciples that rejected Jesus, walked away from Jesus, each one, to a man, had the choice, the decision to make, what am I going to do with Jesus? And they did according to the strongest inclination of their heart at the moment. Every one of them. Does that mean that a week from now, two years from now, they couldn't make a different decision? Well, that's a different moment. But at this moment... They walked away from Jesus. 
Listen to the, um, the, the comment by, by uh, um, uh, Lutheran scholar uh, R.C.H. R. Lenski. He said this, of these false disciples. They seek earth... And when heaven is urged upon them, they turn away in disappointment. In fact, the more they are made to see heaven in Jesus, the more they determine not to have it. Similarly, could we say of Judas? He saw heaven in Jesus. But that's not what he wanted. The strongest inclination of his heart was to force Jesus to be the Messiah now, to rule over all of Israel, to kick out the Romans, to establish a physical kingdom this afternoon. Judas had no idea of the whole plan of God. And the strongest inclination of his will was to do what he thought was right rather than what God said was required and necessary. I want to conclude by telling you the story of Peter. Peter Ghostlin. Peter was a fourth grader living in New England where there was, with great frequency every winter, lots of white stuff on the ground. And Peter and his buddies in the neighborhood with, with great regularity met at the end of the cul-de-sac to build in the snow and slide in the snow and have fun. In 1979, there was a tremendous blizzard that blew through the New England states. And as soon as the storm passed, Peter and his buddies were at the end of the cul-de-sac, like always, building in the snow and sliding in the snow, enjoying the snow. That was the last time that Peter was seen. On his way home, Peter died from exposure. They searched, and they searched, and they searched. And they could not find this little 10-year-old. But when the snow melted, they found his, pro- his, um, his frozen body, five feet from the front door. Five feet. Almost home. Almost. But not home. I fear there are many sitting in churches and maybe there are some of you right here that this will, will touch. I fear there are many that are almost saved. 
and, and by that I, I, I mean they have, they, have, they have seen from the pages of Scripture the deeds of Christ. And they might even be uh, amazed with, with um, astonishment at, at the, the greatness, the, the power, the authority of Jesus in his words and his deeds. But they haven't humbled themselves. They haven't repented of sin. They haven't trusted the Savior. They haven't believed on him. Oh, they, they, may, they may give lip service to Jesus. Christianity, church, religious things, yeah. But you look at the fruit of their life, and you see a life that is riddled with idols, those things that are more important than Jesus. Almost saved. The tragedy of Peter Goslin is, is uh, heartbreaking. But how much greater is that tragedy of that person who hears the good news of Christ, that Jesus is the bread of life, and yet haven't yet surrendered to the Savior. Friends, I urge you, I, I, I press upon your conscience to consider the person and the work of Christ. I know, uh, Jesus knows, that you're only going to make the choice that is the strongest inclination of your heart at a given moment. I know that. But I am pleading with you, urging you to take a very close, hard, thoughtful mind-engaging look at who is Jesus and what are you going to do about it? Father, I thank you for the brief time that we have spent together this morning. I thank you for the clarity of Scripture. I thank you for the clarity of your gospel it is indeed good news. But it's only good news to those whose hearts have been awakened, whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been unstopped. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that even now. Bring that great aha moment that causes us to see how desperate, futile our efforts and our thinking has been with regard to life after this life and draw us to the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.